Hey, good morning. If you have a Bible um, on your phone or if you brought a leather one, you can open that to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be uh, all the way from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 12, so just grab your Bible. You're going to need that. Um, this morning, I want to talk about the Advent of joy, the advent of joy. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I think of joy, I think of amusement parks, okay? Like, I think of the excitement, the joy, the excitement in your bones when you're about to go to an amusement park. Like, these things are literally designed and created with the sole purpose of causing you to experience joy. This is why Disneyland is called the happiest place on earth, right? Uh, it, they are really fun. I remember the first time I went to Six Flags in California. And up until this point in my life, I've only been on small rides, right? And there's a big difference between like play, uh, Playland and Castle Fun Park and Six Flags. Are you with me, right? Big difference. Uh, it's like the difference between like uh, uh, Lunchables and Charcuterie. Like same idea, but totally different, right? Um, but I was stoked to be going to Six Flags. I was so excited. I, I, I couldn't imagine a more fun place on earth. And uh, this, to me, was going to be the best day ever until it wasn't, okay? I had no idea what I was getting myself into, right? The first ride my friends took me on was called Goliath, okay? Uh, it's one of the oldest rides at Six Flags, and it's one of the tallest. It has a 180-foot drop, okay? Translation, terrifying, okay? The name says it all, okay? And um, we had to wait for like 30, 40 minutes in line, staring up at this 180-foot drop. And what I thought would happen is I saw people get onto the rides full of joy is they would come back looking more joyful. But half of the people on the ride came back and they looked like their soul had just left their body. And I started having second thoughts, right? I started thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into, right? Like, is this safe? Am I gonna puke? Like, will my harness let go and I get slingshotted out of the ride? Like, has that ever happened before? What are the statistical chances of that happening to me? And I started to have second thoughts thoughts. And let's just say it was terrifying. I screamed, honestly, I screamed on that ride like a six-year-old girl the entire time. And here I was, the most fun place that I could imagine, and I was supposed to be filled with joy, but I was filled with fear. And just because my friends told me that this would be the time of my life doesn't mean it's going to go down that way, right? Are you with me, right? I was supposed to be filled with joy, but I was filled with fear. In Luke 2, we read of some shepherds who are visited by uh, angelic beings. And the angels tell these shepherds to be filled with joy, but they aren't filled with joy. Like me, they are filled with fear. If you have your Bible open to Luke 2, start with me in, in Luke 2, verse 8. And it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is the angel trying to like de-escalate the situation. Don't fear. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Lord. Okay, so one night, these shepherds are just minding their own business. They're, they're, it's the middle of the night. They're just like trying to like watch their sheep. And all of a sudden, a booming light blows up out of the sky. And some celestial being says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And I'm like, what did you think would happen when you jump scare the life out of these guys? Don't be afraid. What are you talking about? Like, this is like when I go to my wife, Laurel, and I start what I'm about to tell her by saying, 
don't be mad, right? What I'm doing in that moment is letting her know, I'm prefacing what I'm about to say to you is going to make you really mad. Don't be afraid. These shepherds were filled with great fear, not great joy. So what do you do when you're supposed to be filled with joy, but you're not? How does a baby born in Bethlehem, a Palestinian Jew, how does this baby born to the world cause great joy in me and you? This child was supposed to be born and cause great joy for all people everywhere. But is this what you think about when you think about Jesus? Great joy. For many of us, joy is not the main thing we think about or comes into our mind when we think about Jesus. If we're honest, we think that following Jesus will actually rob us of joy. Now, here's the problem. Many of us don't say this out loud, nor do we acknowledge that we cognitively think this way, because it's more in our limbic system. It's more at a gut primal level that we think this. In other words, it's not that we think that this is true. It's that we live like it's true. We think and live as if we believe that Jesus and following Jesus will actually rob us of our joy. And so the reason you and I hold back at um, from following Jesus is because we don't believe that God is for our joy. Now, when I was about five or six years old, um, I wanted to be like my older cousins, okay? They were like teenagers. And I was like, oh my goodness, like their lives are so cool and so adventurous and amazing. They get, they have all this freedom. I hadn't figured out about like acne and like puberty yet and all the stuff that comes with being a te teenager. So at this point, I thought that looked pretty cool, right? And I remember sleeping over at my cousin's house and uh, the next morning, we hiked through the snow together. And I don't remember where we were going, but I do remember having a sense of excitement and adventure. I was one of the big kids, I thought, right? But trudging through that snow was miserable, mainly because I didn't have the right gear, but also because I was so much smaller than everyone else. So every step I took, it was like my, my foot went all the way into the snow up into my knees. And with every step I took, more and more snow went into my boots until they were filled with snow. And my feet, trust me, my feet were not just cold, they were burning with pain. Like I was in so much pain. And eventually I thought to myself like, this isn't worth it. I am in so much agony right now. Like if this is what it means to be a teenager, I don't think it's as good as I thought, right? And I think that you and I can view following Jesus like this. We know it'll cost us. We know it won't be easy. But maybe we hit our breaking point and think, will it cost me too much? Will it take the joy out of living? Will it even be worth it? And so we hold back from following Jesus because we think that following Jesus will actually rob us of our joy and happiness. But in a polar opposite way, Jesus says this in Matthew 13, 44. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And for his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Is this how you think about following Jesus? Is it, is it something that's going to rob you of joy? Or like this man, it's worth selling everything because this is an opportunity of joyous excitement. See, do you see Jesus as the God of joy or do you see him as some sort of cosmic killjoy? How do you see him? Because until we are convinced that we get more out of following Jesus than we put in, we will never experience the joy of following Jesus. Jesus, hear me clearly, Jesus is the God of joy. Jesus 
is the God who brings joy because he is joy in himself. Everywhere Jesus went, he radiated joy. He healed, fed the hungry, forgave sin, and even turned water into wine for crying out loud. Everywhere he went, he was found eating with outcasts and sinners because Jesus is the God of joy. One of the greatest theologians is Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, who once said that God is glorious in such a way that he radiates joy. Jesus said, in fact, that his desire is that your joy would be complete. And in another place, Jesus again says his desire is that your joy would be full. Is this how you see him? Right? Is this how you see Jesus, the God of joy? In fact, Jesus revealed his father to be the most joyful being in the universe. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells him a, a grouping of stories about his father. And he says his father is like a woman who lost a coin and, and a man who lost his son and a shepherd who lost his sheep. What Jesus is saying is my father is the most joyful being in the universe. And he goes and he searches for what is lost because he loves it. And when he finds it, Jesus, again, in all three of these stories, describes the father as being one who throws a party because he is filled with joy when he finds what he's searching for. See, Jesus says that his father is a joyful God in search for the ones he loves. Is this how you see him? The baby in the manger is a God who is full of joy and love. So again, what does the birth of this baby, what does the birth of this child have to do with my joy and your joy? Well, the angel says this, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people a savior has been born. We read something almost identical in Matthew's account of the Christmas story. Matthew 1.21 says that Mary will give birth to a son and he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come to rob us of joy. Jesus came to save us from the very thing that robs us of joy. Sin robs us of joy. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the fullest extent. See, we sin, you and I sin because we want to be happy. No one sins out of duty. I, I'm, I'm going to imagine you didn't wake up this morning and be like, all right, I guess I got to sin. Like, I guess I have a good quota to meet. Like, I, it's something I've got to do. No, we sin because we want to be happy. You want to be happy. And what we do, I want to be happy. What we do is we seek happiness in all of the wrong places. Ignatius of Loyola once defined sin this way. He said that sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I think that's one of my favorite descriptions of sin. Sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. We sin because we want to be happy. And we don't trust that God is for our happiness, nor do we trust that his ways lead to happiness and flourishing. So what we do is we seek happiness our own way. Instead of God's way, we seek our own way to find happiness. But as the proverb reminds us, there is a way that appears to be right, but its end leads only to death. See, in the scriptures, sin is described as like a deadly venom that we inject into our bodies to find pleasure. But it's addictive and deadly. It has enough pleasure to keep us coming back for more, but it's literally killing us. It's making us feel alive for the moment, but it, in reality, it leads to death. This is what Paul meant when he wrote these words in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Welcome to Church Merry Christmas. See, what we do is we tend to read this verse 
as the wages for sin is death. That is not what it says. We read it as if this verse says that, that God is the one who is paying out death, that God is the one who kills. But that is not what this verse says. It says that sin kills, that when you sin, it comes back knocking on your door and eventually says, pay up. See, what this means is that God created a good, beautiful world and and he created it and ordered it in such a way that it leads to joy and flourishing. That's literally what the word Eden means, the Garden of Eden. It means pleasure or delight. God ordered the world in such a way that it leads to human flourishing and shalom. But what we do is we go against the created order and what we experience is disorder, chaos, and death. We experience death. And this isn't because God is mean or evil. It is because you, you and I go against the grain. And sometimes when you go against the grain, you get splinters. This is what Paul means when he says the wages of sin is death. God set up the world for flourishing joy and pleasure. But when you go against the grain and you reject the, the order of creation, sin brings death and chaos into your life. Sin kills not God. Sin brings evil and chaos into the world, not God. Probably one of the greatest Catholic theologians uh, is Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas says this, the order of creation is such that when we rebel against this order, we disorder ourselves. When humans turn away from this divine love, the resulting disorder is itself a punishment. Or in the words of Paul, the wages of sin is death. God many times does not have to lift a finger to punish sin because sin is its own punishment. Sin brings death, disorder, and destruction into the world, not God. Think of it this way. Say there's a, there's a fish, okay? Whatever fish you want to imagine, okay? A catfish, bass, whatever it is. There's a fish in the water, okay? And it's swimming and it's happy. It's flourishing in the water because it's where it was supposed to thrive. But one day the fish decides to jump out of the water and onto a dock. The fish was made for the water. The fish thrives in the water. So on the dock, the fish begins to flop around, gasping for air. The fish flopping on the dock isn't being punished by anyone. It has simply gone against its created order and design. It was made to flourish in the water. So when it jumps out of the water, it's not going to go well for that fish. And we do this all of the time. We think, God, this water is too restrictive. God is holding out on me. I'm going to find happiness my own way. And we jump out of the water of God's love and we experience death and destruction. The fish is not being punished in this illustration. Punishment would be like somebody coming over with a stick and beating the fish saying, get back into the water. That is not happening here. This is why Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. When we reject God's created order and seek our own way to happiness, it always leads to death, destruction, chaos, and disorder. God rarely needs to punish sin, and when he does, he simply hands us over to what we want. That's the language of Romans 1. Because sin is its own punishment. Sin always leads to death and destruction in our lives. Not because God kills, but because sin kills. We were made for the ocean of God's love. And when we jump out of the water of God's love and try to live on our own way, we experience suffering, chaos, and death. And this isn't hard for us to see or to imagine. We see the effects of greed, hatred, and violence all over our world. We see the the brokenness in our sin as a result of our, our sinful world. 
and we know that there's a problem and we look around and we say, God, why don't you do something? God, why don't you remove the sin and chaos and evil from our world? But the problem is that that sin is in me and it's in you. And in order for God to remove that sin, destruction, evil, and chaos from the world, he would have to remove me and you as well. But God doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to remove us from his creation. So he came into the world as a savior, a baby born in Bethlehem. The incarnation is God crashing into our world in loving pursuit of us. This is the pursuing God come to save us from sin. And our God brings joy, not judgment. The baby in the manger will bring joy to all of humanity because he will be their savior. When we sin, it robs us of joy. It robs us of life. It robs us of everything good, true, and beautiful. And, it be, and we become less human, not more. Sin kills, sin corrupts, sin destroys. But God has come that we might have life and have it to the full. So we can have joy because a savior has come to rescue us from sin and its death and consequences that sin has brought into our lives. If you think back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sinned because they didn't trust that what God wanted for them was their deepest happiness. They thought he was the enemy of their joy, so they trusted the snake instead. They thought he was holding back something good from them, and so they trusted the snake instead of God, and they ate the fruit. And let me tell you, it probably tasted good. They probably sat there and shared the fruit with each other and said, wow, this is amazing. I've never tasted anything like this. Have you? They're like, no, I haven't. This is awesome, right? But the snake tricked them. The fruit was poisonous and addictive. It coursed through their veins, infecting them. And now they're enslaved to the snake. They have to keep coming back to get their fix. The snake has become their master and they are under the power of this serpent. And the venom that they keep injecting into themselves is actually killing them. It's contorting them and making them less human and eventually it will kill them. And this breaks God's heart. This isn't what he wanted for his kids but they're addicted to it. They can't stop sinning. They're powerless when it comes to stop sinning. And, and they even know that it's killing them, but they can't stop. They are slaves to their master. The snake has bitten them with his venom. So what will God do? Well, if you read Romans 6:23 as the wages for sin is death, you'd expect God to come and kill them. He's an angry God ready to smite anyone who would dare cross him. But if you read Romans 6, 23, as the wages of sin is death, you realize that sin is already coursing through their veins and it is already killing them. So what would God do? God promises a savior. In Genesis 3, 16, we read these words, 3, 15, sorry. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Speaking of the, the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God promises to send a Messiah, an offspring from the woman, who would come and crush the head of the serpent, but that serpent would bite the heel of this deliverer. He would bite him and the venom of sin and death would infect him. This is the child born of woman. This is the promised offspring who came to crush the head of the serpent. Now, what I want you to notice, and this is probably going to break all of your paradigms for Christmas, I want you to notice that Matthew and Luke both tell a very similar Christmas story, okay? Cute little baby Jesus. Um, you've got a star in Bethlehem. You've got angels, if you follow the tradition of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, you've got some wise men. You've got all the cute stuff that makes a beautiful story to tell your kids, and we love it, right? We have totally marketed this thing to the max, right? We love this story. 
This is the story of Matthew and Luke, but John tells a very different and provocative Christmas story. It's found in Revelation chapter 12. It's going to get weird, so just hang on. John says this, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So you're like, okay, here's a woman standing on the moon. What's going on here? She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, okay? All the 12-year-old boys are like, yes, this is awesome. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, quote, who would rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God to the throne. So imagine this year, you go to your child's Christmas pageant at school, and the kids all come out, and they sing, Hark the herald angels sing, a dragon comes to eat our king. You'd be like, what, what is going on here, right? Like, like if your, um, you know, your Christmas display doesn't have a dragon in it, apparently it isn't biblical. I'm like, wow, this is new. Like, this is not the Christmas story that I'm used to, right? A dragon. What John is doing here is he's telling the exact same story as Matthew and Luke tell. But Matthew and Luke are telling the Christmas story from the perspective of earth. John is telling the exact same Christmas story, but from the perspective not of earth, but from heaven. And so what we see is on earth, this looks like a cute story of a baby being born. But in heaven, this is our God stepping into a battle zone to liberate his people from a dragon. The same dragon that we saw as a small garden serpent in Genesis has become a big, ugly beast. And on the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. He did this by letting the serpent bite his heel. In other words, Jesus took all of the venom of sin and death. He took it all on. He drained the the serpent of all of its venom on the cross. And he took it and he nailed it to the cross. He drained the the enemy of all of his venom and he crucified it and buried it. It is dead. What Jesus does is he sets us free from our slave master. He has broken the power of sin and drained the snake's venom. So I say this to ask you this question. I wonder if the God born in Bethlehem is better than you thought. I wonder if he's more for for your joy than you realized. And I wonder if we keep going back to the very thing that is robbing us of joy because we don't realize that the God born in Bethlehem is actually for our joy. This God offers what sin and the serpent could never deliver on, joy. I have come that your joy would be complete, Jesus said. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus came as a baby to save us from the very thing that robs us of joy. He came to save us from sin itself. And so now we can stop looking to the things that rob us of joy and we can look to the full uh, manger and the empty tomb and realize that our God has come to rescue us. Our God has drained the venom of sin and death and he's taken it all the way to the depths of hell and he has killed it there and he has risen to new life. And now he can stand as the resurrected second Adam and say, I offer you life and life to the full. So will you come follow me? Will you follow Jesus this Christmas, not believing that he is against your joy, but that he is for your joy? This, my friends, is good news that causes great joy. Would you pray with me?